Welcome back to part two of And the Best Diet for Perimenopause Is. The protein leverage effect is a protein-specific appetite phenomenon. So essentially, when you start getting these progressive body protein losses, which happens in perimenopause, it triggers a natural increase in appetite, which is designed to make you eat more protein, which will balance things out because after all, you're losing protein mass. But many of us won't actually find ourselves eating protein and instead we're filling that space with crackers and fruit or biscuits or convenience carbs or fats. And that's a surefire way to gain weight in perimenopause. There was a 2020 systematic review and meta-analysis that assessed the effects of viscous fiber on body weight. And they found that eating more viscous fiber daily was associated with reductions in body weight and waist circumference. So this is perfect for the apple-shaped body and it's perfect for the visceral fat gain that we see in perimenopause. Another study that came out of the UK in 2018 looked at the relationship between diet and menopause timing and they found that a diet high in oily fish and fresh legumes was likely to delay the timing of menopause. And the fish intake was more than three times more likely to delay menopause compared to the legumes. But still, both could be useful as delaying tactics. Welcome back to my three-part episode on the best diet for perimenopause. Now, if you haven't listened to part one yet, you might want to head to that one first and then come back here. Part one has what I call the subsets of perimenopause and the reasons essentially why we're all different and different reasons why we're revisiting our diets. And knowing this will help you to choose the most suitable diet for you. Perhaps your perimenopause symptoms are a different type of symptom to others, or you might be more concerned about heart health, inflammatory disease, weight loss. So I'd recommend that you listen to part one before this one. A lot of research went into compiling this overview of diet. I'd say this is the most comprehensive overview of diets, and it's informed by scientific research and their benefits for perimenopause that you'll find. And remember, if you like this episode or any of my other episodes, then please support my work by giving me a five-star rating and following the podcast. Thanks and enjoy. Hi, I'm Sue Lindsay, and this is the Well Woman podcast. I've worked with countless women and teenage girls over the years as a natural women's health clinician, and I know how hard it can be to get the help you need to overcome hormonal imbalance, infertility, and perimenopausal symptoms. I bring together my expertise in natural medicine and nutrition with insights from experts in the field of women's wellness to help you get the information you need to make a real difference to your health. This truly unique podcast combines the wisdom of the East with the clinical know-how of modern naturopathy, offering a holistic approach to empower and inspire women just like you on the path to optimized health. I'm your trusted guide as you navigate your hormone healing journey, giving you support, accountability, and guidance along the way. Thanks for listening in, and don't forget to follow or subscribe. It's time to nourish you with Well Woman. So if you haven't guessed it already from the snippets, in this second part of And the Best Diet for Perimenopause is... We're looking at three more popular diets really based around weight management. We've got the high protein diet, the high fiber diet, and then we're going back to basics with the Pritikin diet. 
I'll also tell you what I think are the most important nutrients for women in perimenopause and what foods you'll find them in. As in the previous episode, I'm looking for the particular benefits of each diet and what makes them different, what the pros and cons are, and what the current research has to say about their suitability for perimenopause. So sit back and enjoy. Hey listeners, remember this bit from part one? Let's review the three key reasons why you'd be looking to up-level your diet in perimenopause. And remember to keep these in mind so that you know what your main drivers are and what you're really wanting to achieve with a diet change. I'll suggest first that there are a few common reasons why we would want to refine or even change completely our approach to diet and nutrition because we're in perimenopause. Reason number one is we have a family history of cardiometabolic disease, namely diseases that affect your heart, your cardiovascular system. This could show up in high blood pressure, high cholesterol, or even metabolic conditions like type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome. Having a history of polycystic ovarian syndrome is another one. Having a higher waist circumference and elevated cholesterol, these are also risk factors for cardiovascular disease. Number two, we're frustrated and we're losing hope. We want to stop gaining weight or we want to try and work off the weight that we've already gained because it feels like this weight, or should I more correctly say fat gain, is just creeping up on us. Reason number three, and this is um, possibly the best reason to change your diet, is that you're just starting to notice that you're getting all these signs of aging. You might be getting more inflammation or inflammaging, as we call it. You might also notice that you get fatigued more easily, you're getting a little bit of brain fog, you feel like you might be starting to forget things that should be easy to remember, forgetting words, forgetting names, forgetting what you did that morning. It's where you are starting to get symptoms that you never had before, and maybe you're getting more anxiety, and you're noticing the brain symptoms kicking in, and there's probably going to be a little bit of body shape change going on as well. So if a low-carb or a very low-carb diet isn't right for you, then maybe we should look at getting a high-protein diet happening. A high-protein diet is all about producing more consistent energy levels for you. It's about better blood glucose regulation and managing your appetite and your cravings more effectively. How great would it be to just not be so hungry? Thinking also that menopause is a risk factor for metabolic syndrome, why wouldn't you want better glucose control? Metabolic syndrome is a cluster condition of um, obesity, insulin resistance, poor cholesterol results. It's associated with cardiovascular disease and diabetes. Studies tell us that menopause adversely affects all of the components of metabolic syndrome. One other thing to bear in mind is that if you've had what's called a surgical menopause, so surgery, for example, to remove the ovaries has brought you into menopause, then there's a higher risk of metabolic syndrome associated with this. It's around 1.5 times higher. We've already looked at the Mediterranean diet, which is a sustainable form of high protein eating. So that's one option for you. And high protein is really about preserving your lean body mass and also lifting your metabolism. There was a study in 2022 on, you know, what is the actual mechanism behind this weight gain that women see so frequently in perimenopause? And they found that there was a central role being played by protein intake. 
they discovered that not only is there fat accumulation in perimenopause and the first couple of years of menopause as well, but this is happening at the same time as a distinct breakdown of tissue protein in the body. So think about it. This is your muscles getting flabby. You know, those arm muscles, which are looking a bit saggier than they used to. And this whole process of the tissue protein breakdown triggers weight gain. They called it the protein leverage effect. The protein leverage effect is a protein specific appetite phenomenon. So basically when you get these progressive losses in your body protein, it will trigger a natural increase in appetite for protein intake. So that's really what your body is craving and it can feel like increased hunger. So it's designed to make you eat more protein and balance things out because after all, you're losing your protein mass, but some of us won't actually find ourselves doing that. So we're not eating protein. Instead, we're eating carbs or fats, which is a surefire way to gain weight. And if you do end up more hungry and having an excessive amount of non-protein foods while your body is really wanting protein to build its lost protein mass, then you do end up creating more fat mass in the body. The diet composition needs to adapt because we are adapting. We're in an adaptive process. That's what perimenopause is. This breakdown in muscle and protein is due to two things. So it's due to these intermittent drops in estrogen, specifically the form called E2 or estradiol, and it's due to rising FSH levels. This is your follicle stimulating hormone. They can also be intermittently high. So what needs to happen here is that after the loss of body protein begins, we make a conscious effort to amend our diets and we make them more protein rich. And we increase the percentage of protein in our diets. A high protein diet suddenly sounds like a really good option if you're getting ravenously hungry or you're losing your muscle mass and muscle tone. And it gives us a complete protein recovery and our energy intake on the whole will stay unchanged or maybe even reduce in the long run. But if we're not careful, as I said before, and we end up eating more carbohydrates instead, then we only get this partial protein recovery because we haven't really amended our diets the right way and our energy intake starts to become more excessive, which then of course paves the way for gaining weight. So how much protein increase are we actually talking here? Well, it's actually not that much, but it makes a big difference. There was a 2022 study which suggested that an increase in one to 3% of dietary protein in the diet. So, um, you know, if you're increasing at one to 3%, then it will probably take you up to about 20% of protein in your diet. And I think that's almost even a little bit low, but it was suggested that that's enough to make a difference. According to Dietitians Australia, the recommended protein intake for a woman is 0.75 grams per kilogram. So get your calculator out. You want to find out what your body weight is in kilograms and multiply that by 0.75. That's going to give you the actual amount of grams that you should be eating a day. As an, just to give you an idea for a 50 kilogram woman, you know, it only works out to about 37.5 grams, but I would have to say naturopaths would probably want you in a little bit higher than that in perimenopause. And then you add on the extra 3% and that goes from 37.5 to 38.6. And this is grams of protein a day. For a 60 kilogram woman, it's going to be about 45 grams. And then you add another 3% on. Now it's 46.3 grams of protein a day. For a 70 kilogram woman, it's 52 grams of um, protein a day. Then you add the extra 3%, it comes to about 54. 
the 54 gram mark, it's actually a little bit closer to what most associations will recommend for women in perimenopause. For example, Harvard Health will suggest around 53 grams of protein a day. And I'd suggest aiming for a little bit more than this. So maybe 25 grams per meal, assuming that you're having three daily meals. You'll get a lot more than a few grams of protein also by using a protein powder, making a smoothie with a protein powder or something like that. I really like to put my protein powders into my chia puddings. I find that's a really easy way to eat them. And the chia fills me up as well. So this can really help with uh, food cravings and fatigue if you do happen to experience those. You're looking at roughly 25 grams of protein from the average protein powder. So if you're taking it at the recommended dose, then it's almost like that is a meal for you, a high protein meal. And there are some great protein powders around that also have all the vegetables in them, you know, like the, the Brussels sprouts and broccoli and all that. So you can get extra nutrition from your protein powder. I know that some protein powders don't taste so great, so you might want to look at the types of um, fruits or vegetables you can combine them with to make them taste a little bit nicer. And I really like mixing it into coconut yogurt too, because I really love the taste of coconut yogurt. So that can be a good option to tag onto your diet, especially if you struggle with protein or if you're vegetarian and therefore your protein options can be a little bit more limited. You're probably wondering what a high protein diet looks like then. I'd recommend that you think more about refining your current diet by adding more protein in, you know, so just get a basic healthy diet going with lots of fresh foods and then add more protein sources in. And a few ways you can do this are, for example, to eat more eggs. Eggs are easy to prepare. They're full of protein. You can also scramble tofu. So if you happen to have high cholesterol results, you might instead want to go for the tofu. And uh, one of my favorite breakfast dishes, it's savory, is to get a block of tofu and to grate it in a sort of like a carrot, you know, carrot grating thing. And then um, just fry it with some soya sauce and sesame oil. It's really delicious. You can also snack on Greek yogurt, nuts and seeds. You can get into legumes like beans and add them into whatever dishes you're already making. So if you're making butter chicken, you can fill it up with some green beans, some fresh green beans. If you're making a beef stew, you can throw in some cannellini beans. If you're making a tofu stir fry, you can add black beans. So this is a good way to get extra protein in. There's a lot of condiments you can make with legumes like beans. So think about um, dips. You can make dips for crackers. You can add beans into your chickpea dip. You can um, have, of course, avocado as a protein source on crackers. You can have a chocolate mud cake made with red kidney beans. And if you haven't tried this already, definitely Google and find yourself a good recipe for that because it is super delicious. The sky is the limit, my friends. To help you on your high protein as well, you might want to have some lean meat about two to three times a week. And it's more important to look critically at the quality of the meats or the quality of the protein as opposed to the actual amount that you're eating. You want good quality, complete protein sources. For example, chicken, fish, eggs, yogurt is a good protein source. Soy products is very good for women in perimenopause and menopause and postmenopause, of course. Quinoa and amaranth as well. The nuts and seeds and legumes are great, but they are incomplete protein sources. So don't just have them on their own. You might want to combine them with some of these other complete sources that I've mentioned. And that's what meant what is um, meant by the term complementary protein. So basically you take a bunch of incomplete protein sources, usually plant-based, 
and you mix them together to create a complete protein meal like baked beans on whole grain toast or peanut butter on seed crackers. And what does the research say about high protein diets for perimenopause? There was a comprehensive study done on the effects of increasing protein intake. So let's just based on that vicinity of 3% increased protein intake, while also making sure that you're not overeating carbs. And the researchers made some predictive claims based on their findings that by doing this, you would have a weight loss effect in women. But also importantly, by not doing it, you get a weight gain effect. By increasing your protein by 3%, you get a weight loss effect. By not increasing your protein intake, you get a weight gain effect. And you might be wondering, you know, what happens with physical ex exercise and activity on a high protein diet? Well, just like any of the others, it's a given that you have to exercise on the high protein diet if you want to lose weight. So if weight gain and is your issue and you're really targeting weight loss, then you would want to do physical activity because it's been shown in studies to work synergistically with the high protein diet. And it works by stabilizing your lean protein mass and it helps to stop the weight gain process. Beyond this, exercise is also so important for your bone mineral density. And are there any downsides to a high protein diet? Yes, there are. Uh, one that you may not have expected. Some years ago, I read about a celebrity who was um, entering the wellness industry. Uh, she was an actress and recommending high protein diets for children, which is not a great idea. Children have small kidneys. Children's brains need carbohydrates to function well. And in adults, there's also a risk to kidneys. Some think that a high protein intake can put extra stress on the kidneys. So if you have any issues with kidney health, always check with your practitioner or your GP first before you try a high protein diet. Let's talk about high fiber. One way to support healthy hormones and weight management in perimenopause is to boost your fiber intake. You're really wanting those natural foods that are rich in soluble fibers. Soluble fibers are the types that bind to cholesterol in your body as your gut is processing them, and it helps remove those cholesterols. It helps remove fat, it helps remove toxins and debris through the bowels. Fruits and vegetables have lots of fiber, so eating an orange, for example, will give you a really good dose of fiber. Just make sure that you eat all the flesh. Beans are really rich in fiber, so are whole grains. Lots of the research on fiber looks at this soluble type. It's called viscous fiber, and it tends to have beneficial effects like delaying your glucose response after you eat. It lowers the cholesterols in the blood, obviously, because it's helping remove cholesterols. And it also slows down the emptying of your stomach. So it means that you feel full for longer and supports healthy intestinal microbiota as well. The reason why a high fiber diet would be good in perimenopause is because it will promote satiation and this will help you control appetite. And that's one important way that it helps with healthy weight maintenance. So really the diets that we're looking at in this part of the episode are more targeting that sort of weight control, weight management. The thing about soluble fiber is it passes through your system relatively unchanged. It gets digested by your friendly gut bacteria, which then transform it into energy. It can also act as a prebiotic fiber, which is so good for your gut bacteria. The insoluble fibers, some of those can do that as well. 
Often fiber in general, it helps with gut inflammation. It will relieve constipation. So you'll just be feeling lighter, more, more empty, more flexible, more digestively healthy. And it can help with metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance too. The more viscous the fiber, the more powerful the effects of appetite reduction. There was a study in 2003, they found that increasing dietary fiber led to a loss of 1.9 kilograms of body weight over 3.8 months. And this was in obese patients. They Actually, this was in normal patients. The obese patients lost even more than that. The truth is that in perimenopause, it can really feel like a struggle to lose anything at all. That's the honest truth. So losing 1.9 kilograms over three nearly four months is um, it's a good outcome. I mean, often when I'm working with clients, I have them on a lot more products than just fiber. So we can get this process happening more quickly, but it is, it is a tough one. And fiber has got the ability to improve the way that your body utilizes glucose too. So if there's any family history of metabolic disease, or if your glucose levels are high, then fiber is another option for you. There was another study a couple of years later in 2005, they found a high fiber diet would reduce um, systematic inflammation. And of course, we all know perimenopause is an inflammatory life event. So what are viscous fiber foods? These are things like psyllium husk, pectins, natural gums like guar gum. Your oats fits in here as well. So the oats that you have for breakfast, asparagus is a viscous fiber food. So is leek, all of your whole grains chickpeas, um, lentils and beans, also the chia and the flax seeds, things that you can mix into your bread loaves and um, you know your dietary staples. And then apricots and plums are also thought to be more viscous fiber foods. There are vegetables like broccoli and cauliflower. They're really good viscous fiber sources. And you want to get around 30 grams of total fiber a day, ideally a third of this. So about 10 grams would be viscous fiber. So make a note of those foods and then see how you can work them more into your diet. There was a 2020 systematic review and meta-analysis that assessed the effects of viscous fiber on body weight. And they basically found that if you ate more viscous fiber each day, this was associated with a reduction in body weight and waist circumference. Perfect news for the visceral fat gain in perimenopause. And sometimes I will put my perimenopause clients on a fiber supplement, even if they don't have gut issues. Funnily enough, a lot of people seem to think that fiber is only about bowel motion frequency, but it's actually a lot more than that. So there's also the insoluble fiber. These are the resistant starches like your, um, you might've heard of, of, you know, unripe banana powder. There is cooked pasta in here, whole grains, cereal brands and grains. These are more resistant starches and they act more like bulking agents. So they add bulk to your stools, to your bowel motions. And they speed up the transit time for food through your gut. So they often get used to relieve constipation. And that's usually when they're used in supplements. They've also been found to improve insulin sensitivity. A high fiber diet is going to be useful if you're constantly hungry, or if your digestion is sluggish, or if you get bloating and wind. So there's definitely this sort of association with the hunger hormones being out of balance and also getting digestive symptoms. Just by its ability to slow down glucose absorption, it's going to help you um, recover from insulin resistance or at least get high blood glucose under control. And the high fiber diet really comes into its own if you want to lose weight. If you look at a star example of a weight reducing fiber, look at glucomannan. 
Glucomannan is a soluble fiber. It's super low in calories and it basically fills up your stomach, which then delays gastric emptying and makes you feel full for the longer term. And the end result of this is you just don't eat as much. It also reduces the absorption of macronutrients like proteins and fats, something to consider. But so long as you're getting enough good quality protein and essential fats, you would be able to balance things out by having your glucomannan fiber at a different time of day. You still want to absorb your good nutrients. The other thing it does is it feeds your healthy gut bacteria, which then transform it into short chain fatty acids that help you with your digestion. They help to relieve gas and bloating, and they also protect against fat gain. I've got a recipe for a seed loaf on my website, by the way, that would be the most amazing start to your high fiber diet. And it's based on the life changing loaf of bread. So just Google that if you wanted to have a staple recipe for a high fiber diet, either Google the life changing loaf of bread, or you can head to my website for my take. I'll pop it on the show notes here too. It's got the psyllium, the chia, the flaxseed, and it's really a bit of a fiber explosion. Are there any diets that can delay menopause? Well, herbal medicines can, but in terms of food, now we're in the territory of a wholesome approach to diet, getting back to the basics of a desire designed for a vital body, a clear mind, and dense, heavy bones in women. This is the type of approach that you'll find in Staying Healthy with Nutrition, The Complete Guide to Diet and Nutritional Medicine by Alison Huss and Bic Levin. They recommend some foundational foods in the diet, similar to those that we've already looked at, actually such as creating a diet based around fresh vegetables and fruits, nuts, seeds, legumes, and cold-pressed oil. So, so far it's sounding a lot like the Mediterranean diet. Where they take a departure from some of these other diets is the emphasis on vitamin B-rich foods because of their role in ovarian regulation and the menstrual cycle. So if you think about it, perimenopause is when the ovaries are shutting down, so you're getting this loss of, of ovarian function but we want to then bring in some of the foods that maintain ovarian function and egg health. So some examples of these B-rich foods are green vegetables, whole grains, yeast, and wheat germ. And they base this on research that suggests that vegan women and those with low cholesterol levels do tend to enter menopause earlier than women who eat meat. And there's a role that cholesterol and fats in the diet will play in the time that menopause is achieved. So I thought it was an interesting phenomenon. And I did a little research myself there. And it turns out that that association, um, the claim that they make may not be so clear. And the book was published in 2006. So in 2022, there was a study that came out of the US and they looked at the impact on plant-based diets in women over a 20 year period to see if they did indeed have a high risk of early menopause, and they didn't find any evidence of it. They did, however, find evidence of an unhealthy plant-based diet. So in effect, too carby, too many sugars, too many breads and pastries and unhealthy non-meat foods. And they associated this with early menopause. So it tells us that plant-based eating on its own isn't enough, really. We need to be healthy plant-based eating. And veering more towards Mediterranean in a way with all of its healthy plant-based foods and plant-based proteins is a really good way to go. I still do believe, though, that the vitamin B-rich foods are very important for ovarian health. There was another study that came out of the UK in 2018. They looked at the relationship between diet and menopause timing. 
because by this stage I was really intrigued and one or two studies wasn't enough. So they, um, in this study, they found that a diet which was high in oily fish and French legumes. So hail the Mediterranean diet plus fish. This was likely to delay the timing of menopause. And the fish intake was more than three times more likely to delay menopause than the legumes. But still, both are useful as delaying tactics. So what was probably happening in those unhealthy plant-based diets in the previous study was that there was just way too much bread and pasta and rice. In this 2018 UK study, they found diets high in those types of carbs would definitely bring menopause on sooner. And they also backed up the claim by Haas and Levin that vitamin B foods could actually delay the onset of menopause. So if anything, vitamin B supplement. They found a higher intake of vitamin B6 and zinc as two essential nutrients, both delayed the onset of menopause. In terms of how impactful the fish and legumes were found to be, each daily serving of oily fish, beans, and other legumes was associated with a 3.3 year delay in the start of menopause. And then on the other hand, every daily serving of pasta and rice was associated with a 5, 1.5, sorry, 1.5 year earlier onset of menopause. So it really hits home that in perimenopause, it doesn't serve us to be complacent about our diet. It doesn't serve us to think that what we were eating 10 years ago should do the same thing in our bodies now. We need uh, an optimized diet for the metabolic and hormonal changes. We need to refine and tweak. We need to treat our bodies for the transitional period that they're in right now and also accept that we are transitioning. So everything in our body is in an adaptation process. So with this study on the, you know, the, the oily fish and legumes and beans delaying the start of menopause and then the pasta and rice bringing it on sooner, they thought that it was really the effects of eating the anti-inflammatory and antioxidant rich diet. So, you know, that's your oily fish, your legumes and beans. And they thought it was about the effect of those sorts of foods on ovarian egg health. And when you break it down, menopause is about the cessation of ovarian function. So you're just delaying menopause by improving egg health and ovarian longevity. We work in a similar way in natural fertility and naturopathy. So whenever I get a couple coming in to see me, what I'm trying to do is, um, of course, help them conceive and produce a really healthy baby with fewer diseases, fewer allergies, fewer learning disorders but then also trying to delay the aging of egg and sperm and protect them from oxidative damage. And then another study I came across was a randomized controlled trial from the US. It looked at the role of plant-based diet in hot flashes and other phasomotor symptoms of postmenopause. So yes, it's in the more the postmenopause age bracket. It's still though relevant because it's, it's a kind of what we're heading towards. That's the trajectory if you are in perimenopause now. And if you are postmenopause, this will be useful for you to know. So it's in the line of plant-based eating, you know, knowing that the benefits don't stop once you hit menopause. They actually found that a low-fat vegan plant-based diet with soy products led to an 88% decrease in hot flashes. Amazing. 88% decrease. They observed the women over 12 weeks, so they had three months to assess this. And at the end of the study, 50 of the participants who were taking just the plant-based diet had no hot flashes at all. 
So what are the essential nutrients that we need in perimenopause? Well, apart from getting enough protein and fiber and antioxidants and vitamin B, it's good to make sure that you're getting enough omega-3. You get omega-3 from foods like salmon. That's often what we think about, isn't it? But you also get them from flax seeds and chia seeds and some nuts. You may need a supplement, though, to get enough. And just know that many cheaper supplements contain rancid oil, so always go for a high-quality one. For omega-3s, you need at least one gram daily, high-quality fish oil. I have a great one that I use with my patients, and I've, I definitely myself feel different when I take it. My eyes are moister, my skin doesn't feel as dry, and it can also help with joint pain and inflammation. If you're over 50, take a little bit more, 1.1 grams daily. That's like having a single serving of salmon or sardines on your toast. It could be mixing hemp or chia seeds into your smoothie or cereal. Chia has a lot of omega as well. And edamame, you could have edamame as an afternoon snack. It's not as rich in omega-3, but it does have some and everything helps. Then there's vitamins D3 and K2. So often in supplements, you can get them together. This is really good for bone health and it's also critical for immune function. I tend to always prescribe a D3 K2 supplement because in Australia, most of us are deficient in vitamin D. In fact, one in four Australians, according to the Bureau of Statistics, and also according to recent studies in 2023, we need 2000 to 4000 IU of vitamin D daily. The vitamin K is so important for assisting the calcium deposits in bone. And in perimenopause, you get this rate of bone loss, which starts to speed up. That's why it's so important to be physically active because that helps with your bone health. It's estimated that 40% of postmenopausal women will have an osteoporosis-related fracture at some time in their life. Calcium and magnesium are also really important. And in terms of how much you should ideally be having of each of these, for calcium, if you're under 50, you need 1,000 milligrams a day. So that's basically a gram. And if you're over 50, you need around about 1.2 grams daily which is the same as having three serves of dairy yogurt or three glasses of milk or six serves of tofu or three daily serves of leafy green veggies. And for magnesium, you need at least 320 milligrams daily as an adult woman. It's one of the most essential micronutrients for our bodies. It's involved in so many chemical pathways and it helps maintain cell and organ function. And honestly, most women don't get enough through the diet. It's also lost in food processing when foods get refined. And a 2021 study estimated that up to 15% of women are magnesium deficient. A study found also that postmenopausal women with depression had much lower levels of magnesium than those who didn't experience mood changes. So essentially, magnesium is one of the most utilized minerals in our bodies. It's a really, really important nutrient. We often don't get enough of it through the diet and it's associated with low mood and depression. Zinc and iron were found in a 2014 systematic review to be essential for mood and cognitive health in women up to the age of 55. I'll probably say that zinc would still be important and iron would still be important afterwards, particularly zinc. Zinc supplementation 
was shown in the study to lift mood and fight depression, and iron supplementation was shown to improve memory and intellectual function. A good approach would be to check if you're deficient in either of these, so do the hair tissue mineral analysis for your zinc levels and get your blood tested for your iron levels. And if you are deficient, get yourself onto some supplementation. If you're not deficient, just have a lot of the foods that are rich in them in the diet so that you can regularly get them into your fabulous perimenopause diet. The Pritikin diet is a high fiber diet. It's low in fat. It's designed to support healthy weight maintenance. If you were on this diet, you'd be eating fresh uh, from the get-go. So breakfast would be a salad or fruit or maybe some sort of whole grain, giving you a lot of fiber right at the beginning of the day to fill you up and set the tone for moderate eating throughout the rest of the day. Typically, you'd have four serves of fruit daily, five vegetable serves, five complex carbohydrate servings, and two servings of fat-free dairy or calcium foods. So the first thing I thought when I looked at Pritikin was... This is almost a diet for building. This is like the type of diet I would have my kids on, my teenagers on. Maybe you'd have a couple of egg whites, some meat. It was originally touted as very planet friendly and family friendly because it contained a very big range of foods. It wasn't too restrictive. It also had a lot of high fiber in it, which was great. Originally, it was designed to treat cardiovascular disease. So in both regards now being high fiber and designed to treat cardiovascular disease, it is suitable for women who are in perimenopause and they're looking to improve their transition experience. The creator of the diet was Nathan Pritikin. It dates back to the 1970s and 80s. And he also had a dedicated exercise program with it. And the truth is, no matter which of these diets you do choose to go with, or maybe you do a blend, You need that regular physical activity to really see the benefits. In the case of this diet, the exercise regime is quite significant. So you've got 30 to 90 minutes of cardiovascular exercise at least six times a week. And then on top of this, you have stretching and strength training. This diet's quite different to the others, having a really high proportion of complex carbs, the healthier type, but still. It contains around 15% fat, 15% protein, which can be meat or plant-based, and 70% complex carbohydrates in a typical day. There's also a limit on cholesterol foods. Pritikin, he organized foods into three groups. I really like this aspect of it. There is a go group, all the good foods to eat like vegetables, fruits, legumes, beans, lean protein, they go in the go group. Then there's a caution group, And this is your saturated fat, processed meats, hydrogenated oils, cholesterol-rich foods. They go in here as well. And they're the ones that you just want to sort of limit or minimize. And then lastly, there's a stop group. So you've got go, caution, stop. It's almost like, you know, the three lights and traffic, traffic lights, the green, the orange, and the red. Basically, in the stop group, this is a lot of oils. It's even coconut oil. Uh, Even your olive oil is in here. It's palm oil. It's butter. Completely understand that. It's refined grains, sweeteners. It's salt as well. I mean, salt is pretty important for digestive processes and um, peristalsis. So I think it is important. And um, oils like olive oil, that's the key difference between this diet and the Mediterranean. In Pritikin, the emphasis is really on whole foods and plant-based and olive oil It's perceived as being very calorie dense, as are nuts and seeds, so they would be limited. 
if you're just looking for a healthy diet and you're not really plagued by the vasomotor symptoms of menopause, you're not really getting the weight gain, this could be a great option for you. The go, caution, stop um, being the catch cry, I think that's great. Um, I don't 100% uh, think that I would necessarily follow the, the go, caution, stop in the Pritikin diet, but I like this whole concept of having that. And fats are the baddies because of their role in heart disease. I would say it's more restrictive than the Mediterranean diet, so it might require a bit more commitment, particularly with the physical activity, because if you're a woman in your 40s, uh, mid-40s, early 50s, chances are you are super busy. We've got a lot going on, so I just don't know about six days of 90 minutes physical activity. So it might just take a bit more commitment and drive to maintain it in the longer term. That would be one of the downsides. I also wonder if it doesn't weigh up as well next to Mediterranean and some of the more contemporary diet approaches. The 1980s is 40 years ago, and we keep discovering more and more about this dysregulated metabolic environment in a perimenopausal state. And I think we need diets that support our fat burning and metabolic adaptation. Also, I think I'd be hungry all the time on this diet and I'd need more protein personally. So one of the criticisms on this diet is whether or not it actually does give enough protein to maintain muscle function and to maintain endurance and stamina. And if there's one thing that we all lose around menopause, it's muscle tone, muscle mass, lean body protein, essentially. The Pritikin diet kind of evolved out of the post-war period as well. So imagine the state of stress and nutritional stress on people at the time. Pritikin devised this approach after observing the trends in public health during the Second World War. So things like food availability, the cost of food, I mean, the cost of protein compared to carbohydrate would be something to consider there. Perhaps more of a, pro, a building approach may be informing this diet to help people recover. And definitely more so when compared to the other diets we've looked at. But if you identified with the third option I presented right at the beginning of this episode, and you're just seeing some inflammatory signs, some loss of health generally, and you feel like you need to protect your body from chronic disease, Pritikin and aspects of it could be a suitable option for you. And there's no reason why you wouldn't want to be eating a diet full of fresh foods, legumes, and watching your fat intake. Just bear in mind the protein issue. And I think also look at the benefits of good fats. That's it for part two of, and the best diet for perimenopause is, so stay tuned. There's one more part coming. In part three, we're going to be taking a look at traditional and contemporary medicinal diets that have so much to offer in perimenopause. Thanks for listening, everybody. Don't forget to hit that follow or subscribe button. If you're a fan of Well Woman, I do love and appreciate five-star reviews, and I'm so glad that you're listening. Have a beautiful day. See you soon. Hey everybody, please know that the information, opinion and advice provided in this podcast are not intended to replace professional medical care. They are for general information and educational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast may not always be those of the host. Thanks for listening.